My name's Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here along with Sam, and with him I extend my greetings to you. Sam just read for us our gospel passage. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. Jesus is asked to identify the most important command God has given to humans. And Jesus says that's an easy question. The most important command is for us to love God wholeheartedly. That our love for God is to be the very center of our lives. Now, it's possible to love God in other ways. It's possible that we love God like we love a lot of other things. I love my wife, my children. I love my dog, crawfish, steak, salmon, the Shenandoah Valley, a 16-year-old Lagavulin. It's the third heaven. My front porch, fall weather. I love our city under a blanket of snow. We all have lots of things we love, and it's possible for our love for God to sit comfortably mixed in with all of that as one of our loves. But the most important commandment of God is not that we love God like we love all these other things. It's that we love God the most. That our love for God is our central love. It's the very center of our life. Imagine all of the loves you have. And imagine Jesus is saying your love for God should be like a mountain. And every other love you have should be like the weather systems around the mountain. Our love of the Lord Jesus Christ must be the love that everything else flows out of. It should be the source of every motive and habit and choice. It should be the trump card in any situation. It should be the great influence over every decision. Don't let anything else, even good things, come before your love for God. So, for example, to get personal. Some of you are pacifists. Many of you are. Don't let pacifism be your most important commitment. Don't let it be this thing that Christianity serves. Don't let it be the mountain and your religion be the weather system. Now, if you're a pacifist, and like I said, I know that many of you are, and you, many of you know that I'm not, at least I'm not in theory. But if you're a pacifist, the key for loving God is that loving God is the dominating reality. And out of your love for God flows your commitment to nonviolence. But the easy temptation is that when we come to think that nonviolence or change your political um, colors, free market economics or racial justice or patriotism or issues of housing in Harrisonburg or opposition to abortion. The easy temptation is to let some virtue or right thing or good thing become the most important thing and our love for God become a supporting actor in our cause. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, puts it this way. Once you have the world as an end and faith as a means... It makes very little difference what kind of world you're pursuing. 
Whenever policies and movements or causes or crusades or important issues matter more than prayer and sacrament and worship and the love of God, you're on your way to leaving the Christian faith. And so Jesus tells us the most important commandment is to have only one extreme, an extreme love for God. And with that, Jesus answered the question. Remember, the question is, what's the single greatest, most important commandment? And the answer, Jesus said, is love God with all your being. From the center of your being, be extreme in your devotion to God. He could have walked off. The conversation's over. But then he adds something. Matthew chapter 29, verse 22, verse 39. And a second. Kids, you know, you ask your parents a question, and then they answer a different question. Or they take the opportunity to add on to it. And a second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. A ladder needs two legs. It was like asking, hey, can I climb a one-legged ladder? Jesus was like, you asked the wrong question. It's it's. It's out of nature to ask what's the most important commandment. If you really want to get to the heart of Christianity, you have to ask what are the two most important commandments. So loving our neighbor like we love ourselves is massively important. In fact, the only thing more important than loving our neighbor is loving God. Well, if that's the case, then the most important question becomes, who is my neighbor? If there's a person that it's so important for me to love them, so important that the only thing more important is my love for God, if that's the case, who is that person? And for most of us, there is no closer neighbor than our family. And for most of us, the command to love our neighbor is first of all a command to love our family, our mother and father, our brother and sister, our son and daughter, the people that we have lived our lives in the same rooms with and at the same table with. And that brings us to our passage in the Old Testament this morning, a passage of scripture that puts on technicolor display the difficulty And sometimes the sheer impossibility of loving your family. And the amazing power and creativity of God to play the long game to heal a family. Now over the past five weeks in the sermons on Sunday morning, we've been going through the life of Joseph. It started back in Genesis chapter 37. And this morning, uh, Dwayne read for us, Genesis chapter 42. We've covered over the last five weeks, 20 years in the life of this family. And things are not looking good for them. Remember how we got introduced to the family back in chapter 37? Things were really tangled up. It was impossible to tell right from wrong. We had Joseph chosen by God, filled with God's grace that manifested itself in his extraordinary beauty, his, his outstanding intelligence, his, his beyond the normal level of leadership. And even as a teenager, his specialness drew everyone to him like a magnet. 
except, of course, for those who live near him, his brothers. Because the neighbor we live with is the hardest neighbor to love. They were living in his shadow. They were dealing with not only his great gifts, but his incredible immaturities. Can you imagine living with some of the greats of our world after you've read their autobiographies or their biographies? And you suddenly don't want to ever be around them? It can be very hard to live with a brother. And his dad, how, how could dad, Jacob, not be proud? Like everyone else, he saw the overwhelming gifts and goodness in Joseph. And then he responds with a near lethal favoritism. And so the family becomes filled with bitterness and hurt and hatred and violence. The brothers turned on Joseph. They kidnapped him. And right before killing him, they sold him into slavery. And the last time we saw the family as a unit, it was a scene of heart-wrenching sadness. Nine of the 12 brothers returned home from a trip that 10 of them had taken. Can you imagine being that parent? One brother of the 12 had stayed home. 10 had gone. Only nine returned. One is now missing. And in his place are two items. A pile of, literally translated, not money, silver. A pile of silver and a blood-soaked tunic. And it's a mystery. Where did the money come from? And what happened to my son? And the father of this conflict-ridden family descended into the inconsolable grief of imagining his son had been killed by a wild animal. And that's the last we see of Jacob. It's the end of chapter 37. And then we get the next chapter, 38, showing how the evil that has occurred infects Judah, one of the brothers. Filled with guilt and shame, he can't stand being around this house anymore. Looking his co-accomplices in the eye, he flees from under all of the confusion and pain and suffering. He flees and he makes an absolute mess of his life. And then we get three chapters shifting to another brother, Joseph, the one who had been sold into slavery. And the next three chapters cover 20 years of his life. And we saw that for him, things work out. He rises. He rises from being an imprisoned slave to being Pharaoh's deputy. And Joseph seems to have moved on. I mean, you need to catch chapter 41. We didn't read it, but you need to remember it. Chapter 41, verse 50. Two sons were born to Joseph. That's a great way to move on. People in this room have moved on that way. Your life is in shambles. And a fundamental human way of coping is to have a child. Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of own, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Notice, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. A child helped me move on. In the name of the second, he called Ephraim. For God has made me be fruitful in the land of my affliction. That's Joseph's life. He's moving on. But not the rest of the family. 
Two decades have passed since the great evil occurred, since the shadow of Cain's sin spread itself over the family and brother turned on brother. Two decades of shame and secrets and suspicion. And then as if a family could take any more, famine strikes. Genesis chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Why are you stalled out in doing nothing? Well, we know why they've been lulled into apathy and total dysfunction and they can't do anything because there is a kidnapping and and an apparent murder and a lie right at the center of this family. Why do you look at one another? It's a euphemism. Why aren't you doing anything? We know the answer. Does Jacob know the answer? Does dad know the answer? Has he put two and two together yet? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Look, here's a family that is not only dying from anger and jealousy and unkindness and betrayal. Now it's facing a famine and it might die physically from that. As If the difficulty in this family is not enough to tear it apart, now nature itself turns on the family. And just in case you think I'm over-reading here, maybe the brothers and the dad have moved on like Joseph did. Notice verse 4. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother. He hasn't forgotten Joseph. He identifies Benjamin as Joseph's brother. He did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Apparently, over the last 20 years, the father, Jacob, has begun to do math and to put two and two together. And he's become suspicious of the convenient story that the other nine brothers returned with money And one brother was killed by an animal. Apparently the guilt and the shame buried in the corner of the brother's hearts and minds has broken out here and there. And Jacob was living in the horrible position, can you imagine, of suspecting that nine of his children have killed another one. So the brothers head to Egypt. When they get there, they meet the governor, and he's in charge of giving out the grain to those who need it. It's Joseph, but they don't recognize him because he's gone from adolescent Joseph to nearly 40-year-old Joseph. And he's adopted all the ways and the language and the dress and the hairstyle and all of the culture of Egypt. Apparently, These brothers are so convinced that Joseph is not alive that they can't see him there because it's the furthest thing from their mind. So they do what everybody else in front of them in line has done when they get to the governor. What do they do? They bow down. Like every beggar that's come through the door. And when they bow down, Joseph remembers. What does he remember? He remembers a dream he had. If you were with us at the start of this series, or if you're familiar with this part of the Bible, you'll remember that as a teenager, Joseph dreamed that his brothers would bow before him. And then as a teenager, he told them the dream. 
he foolishly shared the dream. Hey, brothers, look at me, dad's favorite. I dreamed you're all bowing down to me. And out of that terrible fiasco, his brothers said enough. And they dreamed a dream to kill him. To kidnap him and the plot to murder him, but selling him at the last minute came into effect. And so all of these memories, there's Joseph, he's sitting there, he's seeing them bow down. It provokes in him this thing that his children had helped him move past. Remember, he's moved on, he's forgotten about all of that, but now it's provoked right in front of him. And so all of those memories that he had pushed down, they, they come flooding back in. What memories? The pain, the humiliation. Some of you have been betrayed by a sibling. You know how embarrassing it is? The fear, the shame, the anger, the desire for revenge, the desire for acceptance and love. It all comes flooding back in a confusing way, just like it would do for you or me. And so what does Joseph do? He strikes out at them. Look at verse 7. He spoke roughly to them. You know, that's Bible talk for cussing or whatever. And he stays in character. He's the governor. He's got all of the power. And he throws down a trump. An ace. Your spies. And at that moment, the room goes silent. Because you know what happens to spies? Today and then? And in verse 17, he throws them in jail. He lets them experience a little bit of what he's experienced. False accusation followed by imprisonment. He knows what that can do to somebody. He knows the psychological pressure that comes under an unjust accusation and imprisonment. And so then after three days of them sweating it out, like Joseph has done several times in his life, three days they're in a pit terrified that a brother is about to kill them. They've been there before, just on the other side of that. Joseph comes to them. Again, they don't know it's Joseph. He's changed too much. He's too Egyptian. His clothing, his language, his hairstyle, all the trappings of power. He comes to them and he renders judgment. Nine of them can go back home. One of them has to stay. And they, go, they can go back home and save this one's life if they bring back this other brother they claim to have had and thus verify their story. And if they don't, the hostage will be killed. And so the pressure gets to them and the situation strikes too close to home. And because the guilt was just under the surface, suddenly they realize they've been here before. Once before, we nine brothers had the option to go home to our father and tell one brother's not coming back. And somehow the irony and the pressure pricks their memories and all the old guilt and shame begins to pour out and they begin to turn on one another. Notice verse 21. We are guilty concerning our brother. See, it provoked their guilt over that old evil. Look what it says. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. Verse 22, Reuben turns and said, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for blood. And notice verse 23. They did not Joseph know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away from them and wept. Now, why do you imagine he cries right now? Here's the key. If you follow the trail of tears in Joseph's life, 
Starting here, he cries seven times. And before the next few weeks are over and we finish out the story of Joseph's life, we'll see all seven times of crying. Follow his tears and you will map the awful pain of a family at long last finding the deep healing of reconciliation. Follow his tears and you'll walk the difficult and complex and overwhelming path of Joseph and his brothers and their father finally fulfilling the second commandment. To love your neighbor as you love yourself. Two more books into the Bible is the book of Leviticus. And there in chapter 19 verse 18 we read these words. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Brothers are bound to love one another. God requires that of brothers. He requires that of families. He requires us. He will not let us get away with thinking about a love for God and not thinking about loving our nearest neighbor. Brothers are bound in the Bible to care for one another. Leviticus chapter 25 verse 25 and then verses 48 and 49. God says if, if, a, if a brother falls into debt, it's his brother's duty to buy him out of it if he can. And then in the next book of the Bible, Numbers chapter 35 verse 12, if a murder occurs, it is the victim's brother who God expects to catch the perpetrator and execute him. Now look, in both these situations, there's a lot of questions to ask. And there's a lot of complex things we have to think through. And the responses God requires of us today in this society, we can't just bring them straight forward. But I'm just trying to make the point that shows up over and over in the Bible. One of the central themes of the Bible is the necessity for reconciliation in families. And the Bible... Here's the amazing thing about the life of Joseph. When God requires reconciliation in families, he is not naive. I mean, as jacked up as your family is, can't you find some parallels in Joseph's family? Can't you see in Joseph's family, God understands jacked up families. He understands evil that can cause families to hurt each other so deeply, it's impossible to really forget it. Part of what we're seeing in the family of Joseph is God knows, the Bible knows, how incredibly complex and difficult and sometimes even impossible for reconciliation to occur. Notice how our chapter ends, Genesis chapter 42. In verse 38, when nine sons returned to their father with a pile of silver and without a brother. Jacob, who's been adding two and two, now he knows for sure. His deepest, darkest, scariest suspicions, they're confirmed. And notice what he says. My son shall not go with you. For his brother is dead. And he's the only one left. You're all dead to me. I only have one son left. You're not my sons anymore. I know who you are now. 
I know what you've done again. I'm not giving my last son to you, lot of murderers. Can you see what's happening? Do you feel the impossibly tangled web of pain? Jacob is talking to sons and saying he only has one. Notice what he says next. If harm should happen to my only son on the journey that you are to make, not when he gets to Egypt, but I know what happens on the road with you lot, then my gray hairs will go down to Sheol with sorrow. It'll be the end of me. There's only a thread of my life left, and that will break it. And that's where the chapter ends. Everyone is locked into a prison of their own guilt and shame and anger and revenge and fear. And when you read it, you get it from all of their eyes. The story of Joseph and his brothers is the story of your family and my family under the shadow of Cain. Now, there are more chapters to come. There's a lot more weeping to come. They do find peace and healing and forgiveness. But our passage today ends here. What is there for us in this chapter? Four quick things. Number one, God wants to heal your family. You have to believe that. Do not forget that. What are the odds that when they show up that day, they get to meet with the vice president of all of Egypt? You see, God is setting the family up. So I think that that might mean for some of you, you need to take comfort. God is going to work for your family's healing. Others of you, it might mean you need to be convicted. Second, God is patient. This is 20 years after the fact. God's playing the long game. Some of us are confused by one of Jesus' teachings, blessed are the peacemakers. We think that that says something about time frames. One of the problems with some peacemakers is they try to force peace too fast. And there are some pains and some evils that God in his wisdom takes 20 years to address. And some of us should too. God is patient. This chapter is just the beginning. It's just the first tier. It's just the beginning of a long journey of God's grace of healing in all of their lives. So what can we get from this? This. Be patient with God. Be patient with others. Be patient with yourself. It can take a long time for the ice to thaw. Third, a third lesson we can get from this chapter is that reconciliation and healing in families begins in confession. It doesn't end there. It has to start there. The brothers... They had to confess. This was, and that's what starts the trail of tears that leads to reconciliation. It starts with their confession. If you have perpetrated a great evil, 
If you are unkind to your family, if you keep losing your temper, if you're selfish, if you look back into your family and you see the wounds that you have called, caused, it starts with confession. Admit it to God. That's the first crack in the ice. And notice, it is God in his mercy that set them up so that Joseph could not forget the evil done to him. So that the brothers couldn't bury the shame of what they had done to him. God set that up so that this would get provoked and it would come out in their lives. If God has exposed your sin against your family, then see that that is God's work in your family. Number four, a fourth lesson. And this is the best of all. And you couldn't see this unless you read close. The fourth lesson is that it will be the sacrifice of the beloved son that heals the family. Notice chapter 42, verse 4. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Notice chapter 42, verse 37. Reuben says to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring this other son back into your hands. I will bring him to you. But Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you for his brother's dead, and he's the only one left. Benjamin has become the beloved son. Now, here's a really fascinating thing Joseph died, the beloved son. So, dad replaced one favorite with another. The new beloved son is Benjamin. We're told that at the very beginning of the story. And then at the very end of the story, we get Reuben foolishly trying to solve the pain of the family by saying to his dad, you can kill your grandsons. That'll fix all this junk. Now, why is that included? Why is his stupid advice included? Because once more in the story, we have seen a man with two dead sons, saying, I will not let my third son die. Judah and Tamar. Remember, Judah had three sons. Two got married. They both died. He thinks Tamar is the black widow. He's supposed to give the third son to Tamar to get married, and he refuses to give the beloved son. This is the second time in the story that a beloved son Being offered up to death is the only way to life. The only way for the family to get grain is if Jacob takes his remaining beloved son and gives him what in his mind is a death sentence. We know from reading that it won't happen, but if he does it, he gets bread. And bread is what they need to live. And later in the story, he finally does. He finally musters up the courage and the trust to sacrifice his beloved son. And this is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Look, the the solution to your family's impossible evil is that a father gives a beloved son and that beloved son draws into himself all of the evil of your family. 
And he draws it in. And you can draw down on that. That's the hope in our grief. As we look at our families with their brokenness and we feel hopeless, you have to know that it is the death of the beloved son that offers bread for the life of the world and for your family. Don't give up. Be encouraged. God knows how painful your family is. Hope in Christ. Be patient. Look for God's surprising work. Let him thaw the ice of your heart and know that it is the death of his beloved son that will accomplish the great healing. Let's pray.